And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your precious word that you've given us. Lord, we pray that as we read through this chapter in Leviticus, we pray that you open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that we can apply this portion of scripture in our lives. Lord, we ask that you give Carl the strength and the wisdom that he needs to speak to us in truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 20. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from his people. For by giving his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives one of his children to Molech and they fail to put him to death, I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from their people to both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them and I will cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. If anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother and his blood will be on his own head. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonoured his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. What they have done is a perversion. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man lies with a woman as one lies with a man, a man as he lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire, so that no wickedness will be among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death and you must kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man marries his sister, the daughter of either his father or his mother, and they have sexual relations, it's a disgrace. They must be cut off before the eyes of their people. He has dishonoured his sister and will be held responsible. If a man lies with a woman during her monthly period and has sexual relations with her, he has exposed the source of her flow and she has also uncovered it. Both of them must be cut off from their people. Don't have sexual relations with the sister of either your mother or your father for that would dishonour a close relative. Both of you would be held responsible. If a man sleeps with his aunt, he has dishonoured his uncle. They will be held responsible. They will die childless. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonoured his brother. They will be childless. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. 
You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, those which I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. A man or woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. Thanks, Carl. It uh, it didn't strike me until uh, I sent uh, Ed the text for this week and I said the title of the sermon, Ed, is Death and Justice. And he said... That's an interesting topic for Mother's Day. (laughs) And I thought, yes, it is an interesting topic for Mother's Day, isn't it? Uh, I guess in some ways this might seem like a a rather tasteless passage to do on on Mother's Day, and yet there it is. Uh, It's the passage that we have before us, uh, and there are important things in it, uh, as kind of confronting as it is, I think, uh, for us to kind of wrestle with and and, uh, and to deal with. For those who haven't been here recently, uh, we've been going through the book of Leviticus and uh, a few weeks ago we did Leviticus 18 uh, and a lot of the stuff in Leviticus 18 was very similar actually to the stuff here in chapter 20. Uh, There's a lot of repetition in this chapter of of the same kinds of uh, offences against God but there's one significant difference and the one significant difference I guess is uh, punishment. Uh, a lot of Bibles title this chapter Punishments for Sin. Uh, for most of us, I think the punishments that are handed out in this chapter are pretty confronting. They're pretty, they're pretty shocking. It's been over 40 years uh, in Australia since the last person was executed. Uh, the death penalty is, uh, has fallen from the fray, you might say. Uh, and I guess the question is, what do we do with this stuff? Uh, what do we do with the stuff in this chapter where people are put to death for, uh, for adultery, for homosexuality, but what about cursing parents? How do we understand this stuff? Uh, and what relevance, if any, does it have for today? Well, uh, I think in order to kind of uh, wrestle with that, the first thing to do really is to, is to kind of knuckle down on this chapter and to sort of begin to understand what's going on. And this chapter is, is really divided into, uh, into sections based on the penalties which are prescribed. So there are three basic penalties. I don't know if you picked that up as we went through. The first penalty is the death penalty. Uh, so the first 16 verses and the last verse cover the sins which demanded the death penalty. Uh, within those verses there are things like uh, offering your child to the god Moloch, so offering your child as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. Uh, if a person did that, they had to be stoned. A person had to be executed if they cursed their parents, if they committed adultery, if they slept with their stepmother, if they slept with their daughter-in-law. Uh, marrying a, a, a both a woman and her mother demanded the death penalty. Uh, gay sex demanded the death penalty and so also did sex with animals. So that... Uh, those, all those things demand the death penalty. The, the second penalty was being cut off. Uh, that penalty was prescribed in verses 17 and 18 for 
uh, marrying your sister, uh, marrying your sister, is that right? Yeah, marrying your sister. Yeah, marrying your sister, uh, or for having sex with a woman during her monthly period. Uh, it's tricky to know exactly what being cut off meant. Some people think that it meant being excluded from the community of God's people. So, so to be cut off meant you know that you had to leave kind of the community. But uh, in verse five, the person who is stoned for sacrificing their child is also said to be cut off, and that you know that doesn't kind of work together. You can't sort of be cut off from the community and stoned at the same time. Uh, so. Some people say, well, what it probably refers to is, is premature death. So in the case of the person who sacrificed their child, they died prematurely because they were stoned. But here in these cases, what's being foreshadowed is that God would judge these people uh, by bringing about an early death. So uh, you've had, we've had the death penalty, uh, we've got being cut off. The third penalty was dying childless. Uh, it can be very difficult even in our own day for people uh, to remain uh, childless, people who want to have kids but who can't. Uh, but that was even more the case in, in Leviticus. To not have children was uh, even more shameful, uh, I think, to, than today because it meant to have no legacy. Today, you know, if people want to have a legacy, they, uh, you know, they sort of win the Nobel Prize or something like that. In those days, if you wanted a legacy, you had kids. To not have children then was, uh, was immensely shameful and so in verses uh, 20 to 22 uh, people who slept with uh, their aunt or who married their brother's wife would uh, as a punishment die childless. Now that doesn't mean that people who uh, in the Bible who, who didn't have kids had committed one of these, you know, all those people had committed one of those crimes. That's, uh, that's a logical fallacy. It's actually actually. If anyone cares, it's called the, the fallacy of affirming the antecedent. Uh, and it's, uh, it's actually it's my favourite logical fallacy, uh, and you can uh, you can you can Google it uh, later. It's almost as good as cum hoc ergo propter hoc, which is also very exciting, and is worth looking up on Wikipedia as well. But anyway, uh, the point is. The point is, you know, just because your child, these people, were, people in, the, in the Bible were childless, it didn't mean they'd committed the crime. But people who had committed the crime, as a penalty for that, they would, uh, they would die childless. Now, it's really easy reading through this chapter, and I think really a lot of the Old Testament, and a lot of the laws in the Old Testament, it's easy to get a bit of a skewed picture of what the Bible's laws are really like. For most of us, these laws are, are, are very confronting. But the truth is that the biblical law in general is actually really quite humane. It's quite humanitarian in the, in the way that it was applied. When you compare it with the nations around Israel at the time, uh, you begin to get a, a sense of that. Uh, one example of, kind of the humanitarian, humanitarian aspect of Israel's laws is, uh, you might remember a few weeks ago, the law about... Uh, not harvesting to the edge of, a, of your field. You know there were these laws that were designed to protect the poor. Uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel. Uh. Very nice. So, uh, I was looking at those before. And I was like, are they going to fall down? So where are we? Humanitarian, right? 
Here I was thinking everyone was deeply interested, but they're actually looking at the balloons. Uh, so humanitarian aspects, what have you got? Uh, you've, got the, you've got these laws uh, for the poor. Another really crucial example is actually in, in Deuteronomy, 20, Deuteronomy 25, where there's this example uh, that says, look, if there's a dispute between two people, the, the judge can decide what the punishment will be. Now, the punishment was in terms of, uh, was in terms of beating. There was a maximum uh, amount given. There was 40, 40 lashes that the, that the judge was allowed to give. But what's interesting is why the judge uh, isn't allowed to give more than that. The reason that they're not allowed to give more than that is because the risk is, Deuteronomy says, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Isn't that interesting? So the concern of the law is not to humiliate the person who's being punished. They've done something wrong, they need to be kind of held accountable for that, but the law is still concerned to maintain the well-being of the people who are being punished. Another kind of key humanitarian aspect of the biblical law is the idea that uh, life was always valued more than property. So in uh, the Babylonian laws from the same time, you could be executed for breaking and entering, you could be executed for looting at a fire or for theft in general. Uh, actually, before the abolition of the death penalty in Australia, uh, some of the crimes which were punishable by death were murder, manslaughter and sexual assaults, but also burglary, sheep stealing and forgery. In fact, the first person to be executed in Australia was executed for raiding the stores in 1788, interestingly enough. Uh, but in Israel, that never happened, right? Because, because property was not on the same level as, as life. The, uh, uh, property crimes demanded repayment, not death. I guess the point of saying all that, just giving those those few examples is to say that the legal system to try and show the legal system which God gave his people in the Old Testament uh, actually compared pretty well to not only modern legal systems but even to our own. It was notable for its kindness and for its humaneness and its reasonableness. But I guess against that background that only raises the question uh, even more why then the death penalty in this chapter? Why then the death penalty at all? Why is it so intense in, this, in these aspects? Why is it so kind in other areas? Is it so uh, sort of confronting in these? To understand uh, what's going on, we kind of have to understand, I think, Israel's context and begin to understand Israel's world. You might remember a few weeks ago, one of the key questions in understanding how to move from the Old Testament laws to today was how was their world different to our world? Well, verses 22 to 26 go a long way to, uh, to explaining that. God says to the people in verse 22, Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you because they did all these things, I abhorred them. Verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I am the Lord, uh, it's because I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. 
When we zoom out from uh, Leviticus for a bit and sort of get the wider perspective of, of where this is in biblical history, God has brought his, his people uh, up from the land of Egypt. He's rescued them from slavery. And when he did that, he said to them that he was going to make them a kingdom of people who did his will, a kingdom of people who obeyed him. And, and all these books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Jeremiah, all these kind of key ones at the beginning, in many ways are kind of laying out the shape of life under God's rule. There's a guy called Graham Goldsworthy who's kind of summarised the big themes of the Bible, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about God's people in God's place in the land under God's rule. Well, what's that going to look like? What's God's rule going to look like in their lives? And Leviticus 20 is kind of uh, outlining uh, some sections of what that looks like. In its context, this stuff in Leviticus is all about uh, God forming a new community. God's forming a community and a world like it was at the beginning of creation. And he's forming, in terms of Leviticus 20, a world without idolatry, a world without sexual immorality, a world without homosexuality, a world without child sacrifice, a, a world without wrong sexual relationships, are between family members, a world, astonishingly, where children don't curse and hate their parents. In the Old Testament, uh, in the nation of Israel, that rule of God was established, however imperfectly, through, chiefly through, through two things. First, it was established through the teaching of the law and second, it was established, God's rule was established through the death of everyone who rejected God's rule. And you see both those elements in this chapter. So on the one hand, God says to these people, look, here it is, here's what it looks like to follow my rule. And on the other hand, he says, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to submit to me, if you don't want to live under my rule, then you won't live at all. In the New Testament, that, that second aspect, that idea of the death of everyone who stands against God is pushed out then from being a present reality to being an ultimate one. The best place uh, to see that is in Revelation chapter 21. Turn to, uh, to Revelation chapter 21, if you've got your Bible. So the last book of the Bible. So... So this is then beginning to map out the, kind of the trajectory, if you like, uh, of, of Leviticus to the New Testament to, to the ultimate uh, when Jesus returns. And John is describing the new, the new universe which Jesus is going to establish when he comes again. And in verse 7 he says, uh, He who overcomes will inherit all this, will inherit life and, and God's new creation, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice, practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. So the New Testament then is no longer talking about physical death, but it's cast these kind of realities from our world into ultimate realities. What it's talking about is those who do these things 
ultimately being cast out of the presence of God for eternity. These balloons come from everywhere. It's madness. In that light then, right, the death penalties in Leviticus 20 are simply being honest. They're just being upfront about eternity. At the last day, God will destroy everyone who has embraced homosexuality, adultery, sexual morality, bitterness and hatred of their parents, lying, idolatry, people like that Revelation and Leviticus are saying people like that can't live with God. One of the most vicious and I think loveless deceits uh, in our present age is that people like that can live with God. People say, no, you can embrace, you can embrace all those things and still know God. Yeah, just, you know, it's fine. You know, some uh, so-called Christians uh, tell people that they can both embrace homosexuality and be saved. I don't know if you saw uh, Obama, President Obama sort of talking about that sort of uh, in not so many words I suppose during this past week. But Leviticus 20 says you can't. Leviticus 20 foreshadows the ultimate judgement on people who embrace those things. The ultimate judgement is eternal dying. But that leaves us uh, with a problem. And the problem is that if God kills off everybody uh, who's unfit to live with him, then there won't be uh, many people left. In fact, there won't be anyone left at all. The solution to that problem is found in Leviticus 20 only in kind of seed form in verses 7 uh, and 8 where it says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Ultimately then, Leviticus 20 and the rest of the Bible put before us two options. The two options are embrace sin and hence death or embrace God and God's promise of forgiveness and transformation. You can either embrace homosexuality or you can embrace Jesus. You can either embrace sexual morality or you can embrace Jesus. You can either embrace idolatry or you can embrace Jesus. You can either embrace bitterness and hatred toward your parents or you can embrace Jesus. That's the option. This is the great lie that the world tells God loves you for who you are. No, that's a lie. God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be who you are. He wants you to be like his son Jesus. That's the gospel. God is willing to accept you as who you are but he doesn't want you to be who you are. He wants you to be like his son. Now in the Old Testament, uh, teaching people the law written in the book never, never achieved that. It never made people holy. Making people holy takes a miracle of God. And here is the miracle. If you believe in Jesus, God forgives you for being who you are and he promises to make you like his son. It's all a gift. 
I am the Lord who makes you holy. It is all a gift and we receive it by letting go of our sin and by embracing Jesus. We receive it by entrusting ourselves to Jesus, to God's majestic Son. So at the end of the day, Leviticus 20 puts before us those two options, either ultimate destruction or ultimate salvation through the promise of God in Jesus. We can either embrace sin or we can put away sin, we can turn away from sin and embrace Jesus. So I guess that kind of helps us to map out Leviticus 20 in, in, in terms of salvation. But what do we do with this stuff today? You know, what do we do with the death penalty for adultery and cursing parents today? How do we, how do we deal with that? Well, I think there's a few things uh, to say about that. We've seen uh, that the rule of God uh, is being ushered in through the ministry of Jesus Christ and that gives us a context for understanding these laws. So when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he's going to bring God's kingdom to reality by doing those two things, by destroying opposition and by transforming those who trust in him. In that context, that means that we cannot make God's kingdom a reality by killing people off, right? We cannot bring God's kingdom in by putting people to death who oppose God. That's not our job. The New Testament says that's actually Jesus' task when he comes to judge the living and the dead. In fact, we can't bring the kingdom of God in at all. Only Jesus can do that which means that the, the most central, the most urgent thing for us to do is to preach the gospel, to introduce people to Jesus. If Jesus is the only one who can bring in God's rule, then we need to introduce people to him. Within that framework, it helps us to understand how these laws apply both in the church and in the states. So first in relation to the church, uh, the principles behind these laws still have relevance today in the church even though the penalties don't. So God hasn't given it to the church to put people to death. We've kind of already established that. That's not our place. Our place is to preach the gospel. But these laws present us with a challenging and I think often overlooked component of preaching the gospel. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, about halfway through the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church, to a Christian church, and there's a guy there who's sleeping with his stepmother, right? Which is exactly one of the things which, is, which demands the death penalty in Leviticus 20. But Paul doesn't say to the church, take that guy out and put him to death. Look what he says in verse 9. I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. 
But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying if there's someone in your church, someone you know who calls himself a Christian and yet embraces these kinds of sins, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, swindling. If they call themselves a Christian and yet embrace those sins, don't have anything to do with them. Don't let them be part of your church. Why? Because they need to know where they stand ultimately. Putting them out of the church is, in a sense, showing people where they stand with God. It's showing them that at the judgment day they will be judged by God unless they repent. So Paul understands these laws in Leviticus 20, if you like, what demanded the death penalty is demanding people being put out of the church. But notably, look at what he goes on to say. Paul doesn't apply this judgment to everybody, but only to people in the church. Look at verse 12 and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. In other words, what Paul is saying is the jurisdiction of the church is the church. It's not the church's job to judge people in the world. God will do that. It's our job to assess where people are at inside the church and to warn them so that they don't miss out on God's salvation. The person within the church who claims to know Jesus but embraces sin, that person needs to realise their eternal destiny so that they would have an opportunity to repent. I have to admit that that is uh, my worst nightmare. I don't know if it's something that you've thought about a lot but it's one of those things that, uh, that... plagues me. I think this would be an immensely difficult thing to actually go through with. It would be a a hugely painful thing if there was someone in the church who evidently was embracing sin and had no desire to repent. It would be such a hard thing to say, I'm sorry, I don't think you know Christ and I don't think it's appropriate for you to be part of our community. But what's the alternative? The alternative is that you don't do anything and they appear before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus says, I never knew you. Now this is one of the important ways of preaching the gospel. It's one of the hard ways of preaching the gospel. The purpose is not so that we can look out down our noses at people or feel better than other people. That's not the point. The point is so that people can be saved. I once heard a a story actually uh, of a church in America uh, and there was a guy in the church and he was uh, was openly uh, homosexual and the eldership said, "Uh, we've got to do something about this. We've got, to, we've got to put this person out of the church. 
And they did. And for 10 years there was bitterness and there was opposition and there was division. And then, you know, years later, this guy realised what he was doing and he repented. And they came together. You know, the elders of this church who'd, who'd put him out and this man who'd, who'd been living in sin and they came together and they, and they ate together and they rejoiced and they wept and they, you know, and they repented. And they rejoiced that this brother who'd been, who'd been put out had been restored through the gospel. So the New Testament kind of maps out for us the way to apply these Old Testament laws this side of the cross in the church. What place uh, do they have then within our society, within our state? Uh, Should we urge governments to uh, demand the death penalty for adultery or homosexuality or people who curse their parents? There are some Christians who would say yes to that. People, they're often called theonomists or reconstructionists. Uh, but they think that that's, that's the right thing to do. Uh, I think there are actually two key questions worth asking uh, and they are this. The first question is, is the death penalty a legitimate punishment? That's one question worth asking. And the other question worth asking is, is, is the death penalty a legitimate penalty for these sins? Well, these offences? I think the answer to the first question is the death penalty a legitimate punishment? I think that's a hard question. Uh, I've put some stuff up on my blog uh, to, to help kind of think through that. An article by C.S. Lewis and another article by Andrew Cameron uh, who's a Christian ethics lecturer at Moore College in Sydney. But I think, you know, there's, there's certainly some places in the Bible where it seems that the government has the right to reserve the death penalty for some crime. So in, Paul, so in Romans 13, Paul says, for the state, uh, for he, the state, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So there it is. The government's been given the sword in order to punish the wrongdoer. Uh, so some countries then choose to employ the death penalty. Uh, well, uh, in, in, from a biblical perspective, that seems to be within their prerogative to do that. But as I said, I, I think that's a tricky question and, and in some ways uh, something I'm still wrestling with. But even if we accept the legitimacy of the death penalty in general, should we as citizens demand the death penalty for these offences? That's the kind of the more pressing question, isn't it? Should we put to death adulterers or homosexuals or children who curse their parents? Well, in a word, no. I think you'll be relieved to know. And it all comes back to that framework. We have to realise that the state is not tasked with bringing in the kingdom of God. It can't do it. The state cannot make the kingdom of God a reality in this world by putting people to death for sinning against God. It can't do that. That's Jesus' job when he comes again to put away opposition to God and to complete the transformation of people who trust in him. The task for the state is to bring justice, The task for the church is to preach the gospel. So for the state, well, there may be a case to, for the state to 
demand the death penalty under some circumstances for, for murder? I, it's a difficult question. I think there's a place for the state to make illegal some of the, some of the sexual relationships found in Leviticus 20. Incest is still against the law. I think uh, sex with animals is still mercifully against the law. But it's not the responsibility of the government to bring in the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' job when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, it's the job of the church to preach the gospel, to teach people about the good news, of, about what Jesus has done, about forgiveness for those who've lived these lives and transformation from being like this to being like Jesus. The most important thing that we can do is to put before people that simple option. Embrace sin and die or embrace Jesus and live. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, these are confronting realities. Lord, uh, to think about your judgment uh, and your demands for holiness. And Father, the truth is that all of us have, have lived messed up lives and, and all of us continue to be messed up people. We, our problem is not just what we've done but our, our fundamental problem is who we are And so, Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, in his death, there's forgiveness for our sin and for our sinfulness. And thank you that in Jesus Christ there's new life. That if we believe in him, we're new creations. We're born again into your family. We're your children. Not in name only, but, but in but in reality. Lord, help us as your people, saved by your promise and your grace, help us to take that astounding good news to people outside our community. Lord, help us to be honest about your wrath and your judgment and your holiness but help us to be winsome in preaching the gospel in showing your love in showing how ready you are to accept people who come to you in humility and in brokenness people who want to embrace Christ and live. Father, we pray that none of us would call ourselves believers and embrace sin. Lord, we pray as a church that you would keep us from the kinds of things that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5. Lord, we pray that you would keep sin far from us. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.